Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always. We are picking up today with the second part of our opera spark notes series on Strauss's Salome. I'd encourage our listeners to go and listen to the first part if they haven't already. This episode will probably not make much sense without the context of that first part. So I'd encourage our listeners to go and and check that out. But without further ado, we'll just jump right in and pick up where we left off. Where we left off was Herodias, the wife of King Herod, trying to get John the Baptist, one of the main characters of this opera, to be quiet. He's been singing a lot, and much of his singing has been slander or criticism against Herodias. And while this is going on, Herod has been kind of creepily, uh, concerningly asking Salome to do a variety of things, to eat fruit, to drink wine. And now he starts begging her to dance. And we start this second part with a scene where John the Baptist is still singing off in the distance, off stage in his hole that he's been kept in. And Herod is begging Salome to dance. And there's this kind of cacophony on stage. It's a great passage where multiple people are singing different conflicting lines at the same time. And he says that she can ask of him whatever she wants at one point. He's pleading with her to dance for him. It's a very kind of creepy scenario where, you know, he's the stepfather. He's asking her to do this dance for him. It's It goes along with the kind of risqueness of this this plot that that created such a, a firestorm when when Salome was was premiered. And I want to play a clip of music here where she asks if he's for real. You know, he says she can have whatever she wants and suddenly this the music changes and we we hear the very kind of cunning, almost nefarious character of Salome come out here where she asks like you know, you just said this. Are you actually for real? Can I have whatever I want? And let's hear this passage about a minute of music where this this scene unfolds. So in this scene, you can hear three characters. Herod is pleading desperately to Salome for her to dance. Herodias is begging her not to dance. Um, And she is asking him, are you for real? And at the end, she says, you know, you've, you've sworn an oath. Do you understand what this means? So 
this scene unfolds and it's a very eerie feel to the to the this passage and to this this moment this kind of crux in the plot and then Herod if you remember from the previous part this happened earlier but he starts kind of hallucinating again and he feels what he calls an icy wind we get the same kind of creepy slithering music which we heard in the first part for this this type of hallucination in this passage we hear one of John the Baptist's light motifs so we know Allah, the technique of Wagner and, and Strauss in, in this type of opera from the use of leitmotifs that something is something involving John the Baptist is, is coming. He starts hallucinating even more, says that his cloak is too tight, his crown is starting to burn him. And then he kind of snaps back into it and asks her to dance again. And she says she will. John the Baptist throughout this is still singing. Um, there's still this kind of cacophony going on. And Herodias is also singing, saying she hates John the Baptist's voice. And she's also very upset with Herod for this, what's unfolding here, him asking Salome to dance. And, you know, dancing in this context is meant to be a very kind of seductive act. And so it's it's all the more creepy. It's It's in a way, you know, it's it's close to some form of like incest in, in, in a sense, you know, he's, he's asking Salome to do some sort of very seductive act for him. And he's, you know, her, her, her stepfather. So very, very creepy moment in the, in the narrative going on, on the, uh, uh, on the stage here. So I want to hear, a, a n- another passage of music that, that comes up right after this where Herod asks her to dance and she says she's ready. And this is the moment where we start what's called the Dance of the Seven Veils. Very famous passage in Salome. Long orchestral interlude where Salome does this dance where she takes off seven veils one by one. Um, this is all often excerpted and played by itself because it's it's such a great piece of just instrumental music and it's an interesting long orchestral interlude in the middle of this relatively short opera but I want to play right when this this dance is initiated he says to dance she says she's ready and then boom we go So here starts the the dance of the seven veils, and I want to listen a little further, just just a few seconds later, to when the first section of of dancing starts, the what we might think of as the first veil, and you can hear right up from the outset. She says she's ready to dance, and then these drums come in. It it has a very kind of Middle Eastern uh, 
kind of orientalist feel you know this was this was common actually for for music of the early 20th century to to explore the music of of other cultures often you know in in a way that now we would probably see as cultural appropriation but kind of taking the the language in this case it's the kind of modal harmonic language of of Middle Eastern music and kind of co-opting it for a primarily Western opera. But of course, this this plot is unfolding in Judea, most likely, you know, modern day day Israel. And so this is somewhat appropriate style of music potentially for the, you know, I think that's that's why obviously Strauss chose this kind of Middle Eastern inflection for the dance of the of the seven veils. But whatever you feel about this this use of of music it's 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 fascinating and it's it's certainly great music um so let's start the first dance has a very similar flavor to the opening but it's a nice slow waltz so here we go So a very famous opening to this this dance of the seven veils again has that kind of it certainly has a what I would call a kind of seductive um, alluring quality but also uh, influenced by by the music of of the Middle East. So let's let's get a little taste of just some of the music here. It's a long instrumental passage as I men- mentioned, but let's hear a little bit of a passage from the middle of this dance of the seven veils where we hear a important light motif make an appearance. So here's a here's another passage from the from the middle of this this long orchestral interlude. So interestingly there, those listeners who have been following along closely and remember the leitmotifs, out of nowhere comes the leitmotif of, of John the Baptist. So he hasn't really made an appearance for a while, but we're reminded of him again. And then we have that that kind of expressive music that, that follows right after. And that is, that's become something of a, of a love leitmotif in this opera that often follows John the Baptist's motif. So interesting little hint towards that in the middle of this dance of the seven veils. It tells us that something is going on here beyond just this kind of creepy scene of Salome dancing for her her stepfather. So let's listen to another short passage from a little later in the dance just to hear some of the varied styles that Strauss brings to this long passage because as she takes off 
these veils, the music kind of changes a little bit each time. So, so here's another great passage from, from a little later in the, the Dance of the Seven Veils. So here we kind of slip into this hyper-romantic language in a way. You know, a lot of the Dance of the Seven Veils has been very modernist. Um, but here we get this very expressive, deep uh, passage, almost heart-wrenching, gloomy in a way. It's very Malerian, actually. There's a passage from Mahler V that sounds almost exactly like this, written very... Uh, close to, to Salome in 1901, 1902. But yeah, this is an incredible dance because Strauss showcases so many different musical styles in this one orchestral interlude. Um, so then I want to hear one more little passage from this, this dance where we hear this motif once more of her being kind of uh, intrigued. You know, we've heard this a few times like when uh, Herod said that he would give her whatever she wants. And then and then some very, very Straussian writing follows. So let's just listen to this one more little short passage towards getting towards the a little more towards the end of, of the dance now. So here you, you hear that motif of, of her being kind of intrigued by things and, and that kind of curiosity that is uh, a huge part of Salome's character, but, but that kind of nefarious curiosity. It starts getting morphed by Strauss into a nice, almost Viennese waltz, very glittering texture. This is so Straussian, we might expect to find this in like one of his later operas, like Rosen Cavalier or something, but really showcasing the full gamut of, of musical styles over the course of this dance. So now let's hear the very famous passage, maybe the most famous passage in this entire opera, the end of Salome's dance, where, you know, very infamously, notoriously, in the premiere and... Actually, I'm not sure if this happened in the premiere, but in, in one of the early performances and many times afterwards, the tradition is if you're really staging the most controversial, groundbreaking, um, faithful to the, the composer's intent type of opera, Salome, for a brief moment, takes all of her clothes off and is, is nude on stage. You know, this is, And this is kind of the ultimate act of, of subversiveness to the operatic tradition, everything's so buttoned up, fancy costumes, and it shows the, the kind of perversity of this whole scene where she's, she's literally doing a, a striptease for her, 
her stepfather. So in, you know, this is a question for opera, opera directors every time they, they do this piece, if they actually have Salome naked on stage. But in any case, the music crescendos to this kind of ecstatic frenzy at the end of the dance. And I want to hear this, this fateful moment where she completes her, her seduction of, of Herod. So here's the end of Salome's Dance of the Seven Veils. So there you have it, the end of Salome's Dance of the Seven Veils. We hear that motif of when she's intrigued or something like that once more, and then she finally takes off the last veil, is is briefly naked on stage, and then usually covered up almost immediately. But, but um, Herod comes back in and says, you know, wonderful, he loved it, he'll give her whatever she wants, and we kind of build up to, to what she's going to ask for. And she says she's going to want something on a silver platter. And Herod is like, you know, great, whatever you want. He's kind of ecstatic with this dance that she's just done for him. And then very important moment in the plot. She asks him for the head of John the Baptist. And I want to hear this, this moment as well. Dass du haben möchtest, Salome. So, in what I think is genius fashion, Strauss. You know, she asks for the head of of John the Baptist, and what she sings is this perfect major triad, E major. It's like the most, in a way, it's the most harmonious and kind of sonorous music we've we've heard in a long time. But also, there's kind of that eerie fluttering going on between, and we feel in some way that this is like, it's it's. You know, it's the ultimate kind of off-putting gesture here that, that this is major and harmonious, that she's asking for something that's so grotesque and and vile. Um, I think just a, a moment of genius, one of many in this, this opera from Strauss. So she asks for John the Baptist's head, and you can hear right at the end of that clip, you know, chaos ensues. 
So Herodias, Salome's mother, loves this idea because he's been slandering her over and over. And Salome says she's not listening to her mother. She wants it for her own pleasure. And Herod starts begging with her to ask for anything except for that. He says he won't do it, but she keeps telling him, you know, you swore an oath. And he continues, he continues to plead with her. There's a long scene. He offers her an emerald. He continue, she continues to demand for John the Baptist's head with the same kind of barren texture that, that we've gotten used to when she, she makes these type of proclamations. And then he starts kind of going crazy again. He says her beauty drove him crazy. You know, he's having his hallucinations again. And he continues to plead. She continues to insist. There's this, this long scene. And I want to listen to one very brief uh, moment from this scene where he says, you know, she shouldn't do this because John is a holy man. And I want to hear this small tweak of, of the John the Baptist motif. You know, if, for those listeners who are paying very close attention, it's good to listen very carefully to, to this one passage because it's, it's a very small change, but another moment of, of absolute genius by Strauss. So here's that one passage in the middle of this this scene where Herod is pleading with Salome. So I think this is a genius moment because we hear the, you know, he's talking about John the Baptist and we hear one of his two main motifs which normally goes, excuse my singing, and now Strauss has changed one note just slightly, so it goes, and suddenly it's been kind of minorized, that, that note has been lowered by what we call one half step, but it's such an important change because suddenly we hear that there's there's something very wrong here, the figure of of John the Baptist has has changed in the in the kind of scope of this opera and something is is very different after we've we've crossed this this threshold where she's you know asked for for his head so Herod continues to please says that you know he starts offering up jewels that even Herodias didn't know he had which of course you know he's digging himself further and further into a hole here um, he's throwing everyone under the bus. And then he starts very rapidly throwing everything out. She can have the high priest's cloak, etc. You know, he, he, and he's saying he, uh, he won't give a man's life, but she still continues to insist. And I want to hear this passage towards the end of this scene where he's just trying everything that he can to, to get out of this.
So there we hear kind of the final time that she insists, you know, he's trying everything and she says again, no, give me the head of John the Baptist and boom, you know, that's the moment he finally gives in. Um, he says she's truly her mother's child and there's this great orchestral interlude as this is going on. He starts hallucinating, freaking out again. He's, he keeps saying he's sure something bad will happen um, now that, you know, this 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 is this is what has to happen and there's a lot of suspenseful music um you know he a slave has been sent down to cut off the head of john the baptist and she's waiting very suspensefully she says she doesn't hear anything and she she notices that you know john is not crying out she's saying i would you know i would cry out why is he not crying out i would be scared very creepy scene and then she hears something fall to the ground and, you know, she gets kind of excited and this slave comes up and brings up the head of John the Baptist. And now I want to listen to a moment, one of the kind of cruxes of the opera here, which starts this massively long, very challenging Wagnerian-esque aria, if we want to call it that. Of course, these operas don't really have arias per se, but this long passage where Salome sings unbelievably romantic, intense, high music. This is, this is what makes this role for singers one of the most demanding in the repertoire. And this is where she, she says, he would not let her kiss his mouth and now she will. So she had been kind of thwarted by him and she clearly had been kind of intrigued by him. And so her solution to this very creepily, as as is the case in many things in this opera, was to ask for his head, and now she's able to to kiss him when you know he he shunned her before. So let's listen to this is kind of a long passage, but it's beautiful music, and it's one of the most important scenes in the opera. So we'll we'll hear a a, a big portion of this where she says, you know, now she will kiss him finally. So in that passage, we hear this kind of 
the motif of Salome's intrigue or whatever we've been calling it, uh, that seems to be winning out. And it's, it's almost a kind of, it's got a vengeful, you know, Salome's wrath type of, of character. Um, and so it, it almost seems like she did this, she did this kind of vengefully, um, and it's being blared out by the brass. And, um, so she starts asking him to open his eyes. Why won't he look at her? Is he afraid of her? And we've still got this, this very kind of romantic, melodramatic music. And I should mention, you know, right from the outset, we've already heard a little bit of it in this first clip, but as we get into this, this big melodramatic aria for, for Salome, the music shifts notably and it's very Wagnerian, early Straussian. It's got it's massively romantic, sweeping melodies, big orchestration. It's like a totally different uh, style of music from, from the rest of the opera. And there's this long passage of music that, that is, is much more kind of Wagnerian in flavor from here until, until the end of the, the opera, like 20 minutes or so. It kind of suddenly, suddenly we've just been transported into this totally new world after after John the Baptist's head has been given to Salome. So she starts kind of going a little bit crazy. She starts singing about how beautiful he was, you know, more romantic, beautiful music. She asks again why he didn't look at her, says if he had looked at her, he would have fallen in love with her. And so, you know, she thinks her beauty would have, have ensnared him. And there's a very important moment where she says, the mystery of love is greater than the mystery of death. And it's kind of in some way seemingly meant to encapsulate what's gone on here, um, why she's done this. Very important moment. The timpani actually plays this Salome kind of intrigued motif. Um, and Herod is, is scared by all of this. He, he finally comes back in the scene. He wants to leave and, and hide and, he asks to put out the torches and he says, you know, we've, we've mentioned the moon several times. That's a recurring motif in this plot. And he wants to hide the moon and stars because he thinks something terrible will, will happen. And then I want to hear kind of two minutes from the most important moment in the opera, the, the final last few minutes. Um, and this is the, the ending scene when, when Salome actually kisses his mouth. And this is, what's so fascinating about this, this scene is that it has a real, uh, it, it, it seems to reference very closely Strauss's, uh, you know, compositional idol in many ways, Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Tristan and Isolde written, you know, 40 years before. Um, massively groundbreaking work in, in the operatic genre both in terms of, of harmony. Uh, this is the first like fully chromatic piece of music for, for our listeners who, who are following along and, and happen to know what that means, but it's, it's not important for those who don't necessarily. It's just, it expanded the scope of, of harmony massively. And it was also just a, a, a very notable and influential plot, this kind of uh, star-crossed lovers plot a la Romeo and Juliet where where they both die at the end and 
Liebestod is Isolde kind of kills herself at the end because she was so in love with with Tristan, and this whole scene has this feeling of a kind of modernized, perverted version of a Liebestod because the music is what's what's so genius about this is that the music is so similar, sweeping, dramatic, but there's something very very off. She's in love with this severed head and she's just done a dance for her stepfather and you know it's it's flipped the whole romantic paradigm of kind of Romeo and Juliet star-crossed lovers you know a very tragic but kind of uh heart-wrenching and and real type of scenario and plot on its head and now it's this highly perverted odd you know narrative that that has unfolded that that leaves us very perplexed or or jarred or kind of uncomfortable or whatever it is i think it's a genius kind of modernist rewriting of of this Liebestod scene so let's listen to this final scene you'll get to hear one of the most famous chords in all of music at the end of this here's two minutes from the end of of salome remarkable moment there to me one honestly one of the most remarkable moments in all of music you've got this massive dramatic aria and suddenly we arrive in the key of c sharp or d flat major and this is notably the same key as the end of the ring cycle has huge importance for wagner uh you know this is how he ended his his massive uh tetralogy that that 
was so important for romanticism and really the standard bearer for for opera for the next 50 years and in a in a similar opera using light motifs using the same type of harmony but with such a dramatically different and modernist and creepy and subversive plot in every way we get to the final moment of this opera and we hear what should be just a standard musical cadence right there at the end one five one the most basic pa uh, the, the the most basic progression of of tension to resolution in all of music and you know the the standard bearer for tonality itself you know one five one is is a chord progression that defines tonality confirms a key and in this last moment where we expect to hear a five we instead hear a five chord with this crunching dissonance on top it's the ultimate you know you hear it right there at the end it's like cacophony in your ears and to me this is just a single chord kind of blowing up romanticism you know we've had this crazy modernist plot a rewriting of the Liebestod. it's saying kind of once and for all tonality not tonality is dead but this is the new way of the future. What a remarkable moment, you know, and, and he could have so easily just written a, a one five one there, but it's very intentional that there's this crunching massive dissonance on this final cadence in D flat major, the Wagnerian key. So it kind of with one fell swoop just drops the hammer, you know, or drops the curtain on on romanticism after this long romantic recomposition of of the Liebestod from Tristan and Isolde. So then in true Straussian fashion what I also find so 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 interesting is is um Strauss ends a lot of his operas in kind of almost cheeky fashion, you know, he could have ended right there and it would be an incredibly poignant ending, but instead he hits us with a 20-second passage at the end of of this opera where Herod says, kill that woman, it goes to C minor, totally, totally different key from what we've just been in. And there's this dramatic quick passage where Salome gets killed for what she's done at the very end. And then boom, the opera is over before it even started. The same thing happens in Rosen Cavalier from a few years later. There's this massively dramatic final trio and then there's just this little cheeky, quirky ending at the very end where this character comes on, sneaks off, and that's that's it. But here's the the ending of Salome, this nice little tagline on the end of this massively dramatic and groundbreaking opera. So there we have at the end of Salome, very interesting ending, you know, the, char the, the main character dies in the last 20 seconds after this dramatic, melodramatic aria. But what a phenomenal opera. I mean, this final chord is so poignant. Craig Irie, a musicologist critic, 
has called this single chord. It's the quintessence of decadence, you know, ecstasy falling in upon itself, crumbling into the abyss. So this is almost like Strauss's blow to civilization itself. You know, a lot of these decadent artists, Oscar Wilde and certainly Strauss, in this fin de siècle movement in, in, towards the turn of the century, saw kind of the, the, the doomsday of civilization on the horizon. They, they saw civilization itself getting kind of in front of its skis, and you hear this moment of complete collapse. You know, in, in, in musical terms, a cadence 151 is like the most, you know, basic representation of humanity, of, of, of musical civilization that there is, the fact that we discovered this kind of satisfying mathematical relationship between two chords and Strauss has dropped a bomb on, on this this most fundamental of, of progressions at that that at the end of this opera, set up masterfully over over twenty minutes of of this kind of recomposed Liebestode leading up to this moment. So hard to put into words just how powerful I find this opera, but also how fascinating just it's whenever you watch it, it leaves you a little sick to the stomach, a little moved, certainly floored by the genius of the music. Um, and I hope these these breakdowns will encourage our listeners with a little bit more info now to go and actually watch the opera because it's it's certainly watchable in, in a single evening or something like that. It's not particularly long, but also unbelievably rewarding. Every minute is is worth the time and there's no dead time like there is in, in some other operas. It's just action packed and, and also just in my mind, one of the greatest works of, of musical genius that we have in the repertoire. So with that, I want to thank our listeners as always for joining us. We'll be back soon with, with probably some more opera breakdowns to come. So if you've enjoyed this, we'll be back with, with some more. As always, I want to thank our listeners for, for staying with us, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing. And I also wanted to mention, I got a lot of messages after the, the last episode. Um, first, people, I, I, I was glad to hear that a lot of people really love Salome, but also that, that people kind of, I wanted to mention very briefly towards the tail end of this, this episode about one thing that I mentioned on the previous episode about Strauss's fraught relationship with, with the Nazi party and, and I think it's what I just say is to go encourage our listeners to read up on this if they want to, because because it is a very kind of questionable relationship. And some listeners pointed out to me that um, Strauss actually, you know, he had some some Jewish relatives and that he he took a few very notable actions to to oppose the, the Nazi party. And and some of our listeners mentioned, too, which I think is an excellent point that it's possible that the setting of this play, Salome, just the fact that all of these people would, would have been Jewish themselves, is maybe a reflection of the fact that he didn't hold particularly anti-Semitic views. And if, if, if one of the contributors to this narrative did, maybe it was, was Oscar Wilde. I'm not the um, arbiter of truth on that matter, and I certainly am not the most qualified to comment, but... It's something I'd encourage our listeners to go explore, and I appreciated all the, the messages that I got about um, about Strauss, about Salome, and and the many uh, joys that people have listening to this this incredible opera. So, 
hopefully our listeners will all go go listen, rate, review, and subscribe the podcast, and we will see you back here shortly. Thanks as always. Thank you.